Welcome back to Force Material. My name is John Porch. I'm the editor at the Performance Institute here at Leaders in Sport. And in this series, we explore some of the many stories at the intersection of four key pillars. Sport, entertainment, lifestyle, and culture. This podcast is brought to you by Force, which is a collection of social and content experiences designed to identify and unlock the areas where those four pillars collide. A collaboration between Leaders in Sport and Sport Business Journal, Force was launched in association with our founding partners, Constellation Brands and GMR Marketing. We launched our big event in New York City in May, and it's set to become an annual fixture. If you'd like to find out more, see how the week unfolded and understand how you can join us next year, head over to our website, www.for-se.com, or check out force underscore events on Twitter and Instagram. Sport has always been ingrained in our society. When most people think about sport in the ancient world, they think of the Olympics in ancient Greece. But in its earliest forms, sport goes back even further. Many estimate it predates civilization. So for people to keep playing sport all this time, we've had to create new sports, ones that appeal to different people across different cultures in different eras. But how do you start a sport? When does it elevate from a game amongst friends to something quote-unquote legitimate? Is it when X amount of people play it? Is it when it establishes a governing body? In our modern world, is it a broadcast deal? Sponsorships? Internet buzz? How do you get to that point as a modern sport where you finally achieved credibility? To help us answer these questions, we spoke to four key leaders in three fast-growing sports. The first sport is pickleball, who experienced a pandemic boom that catapulted it to the fastest growing sport in America. My name is Tom Webb. I'm Chief Marketing Officer for the Association of Pickleball Players, better known as the APP. So I lead marketing for one of the leading pickleball organizations in the USA uh, and now worldwide as the sport is starting to grow in popularity throughout the globe. The second is Quadball, formerly known as Quidditch. They're finding exciting new opportunities in their rebrand and recently hosted their first World Cup with both a new name and a renewed potential for even further growth. Hi, uh, my name's Dec Ramsey and I am the president of Quadball UK. My name is Jeremy Schleicher. I'm the director of operations for the International Quadball Association. As director of operations, it's my role to ensure that the organization remains healthy and just continues to grow and succeed. The organization as a whole, it is the international governing federation for the sport of quadball. And last, but certainly not least, we got a perspective from breaking. Also known as breakdancing, the sport has been given what many would consider the rubber stamp of credibility. It will make its debut as an Olympic sport in Paris 2024. Um, hey, I'm Rob Poutney. I'm one of the founding board members for Breaking GB and the current Paris 2024 team leader um, for the qualification journey. So, along with these four specialists, Let's examine this credibility odyssey, what obstacles there may be, what success may look like, and how it's more profoundly different for modern sports than it was for traditional sports.
Manchester City are still alive here. Balotelli, Aguero! Soccer, or football as we call it here, is easily the world's most popular sport. It's hard to pinpoint exactly how many fans there are, but a quick Google search estimates up to 5 billion. Now, games involving balls and feet go back many millennia. There was even an Anglo-Saxon variant that used a pig's bladder instead of a ball. But prior to the 19th century, there were no football clubs, no FA, no FIFA, and no World Cup. Imagine a world where you could swing by the British Museum, but you couldn't pop down to the Emirates Stadium when Arsenal was playing. But every sport had to start somewhere. Every sport has a story of how it went from hobby to heritage. As I mentioned, we've spoken to three new and exciting sports, and it would be nice to tie them all in a neat little bow, to weave these threads together into one cohesive narrative. But each of these sports are on a very different journey, have a very different culture surrounding them, and very different origins. So let's get a quick explainer from each. First we'll hear from Pickleball, in the words of Tom Webb, the CMO of the APP. Pickleball started in 1965 in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. It, it really is a kind of what they would call here a backyard game. Uh, some people were trying to come up with a new sport, um, as you do, uh, and uh, literally invented this game, Pickleball. It sounds like tennis. They look like ping pong and kind of plays like badminton, but it's none of the above. This is Pickleball. Uh, the APP conducted some research earlier this year which established that nearly 50 million adult Americans have played the sport at least once in the last 12 months. Um, there's uh, nearly 20 million are playing at least eight times or more a year. It is currently America's fastest growing sport. I would say we're probably not that far away from it potentially being the world's fastest growing sport. The pickleball world went crazy after tennis star Serena Williams made a huge revelation about pickleball on the Ellen DeGeneres show. I love pickleball. Isn't Good. it fun? I love pickleball. Yeah, and I love that it's everywhere now. I know, it's very yeah. popular. And the question on the lips of every uninitiated listener, why is it called pickleball? Uh, there is some debate around where the name comes from. There is one theory that one of the guys who invented it had a dog called Pickle, uh, and the dog kept running off with the ball, which is why Pickleball came about. As any dog owner would agree, that sounds perfectly conceivable. <coughs> now, let's move on to Quadball, with a brief history from Declan Ramsey, president of Quadball UK. It was uh, two students in 2005, Alex Benepe and Xander Manchel, who were students at Middlebury College in Vermont, USA. And they had a kind of tradition where they would play a fun, silly game or try an, a made-up sport every Sunday. And 2005, it's really at the, the height of the Harry Potter mania. The films are out, the books are out. And they were like, why don't we try and make a version of Quidditch and play it? And they played it on the college lawn with a bunch of friends and they had a huge amount of fun. And they found that it was a really good base game there for them to enjoy. Um, so then they started codifying it. They started having intercollegiate matches. And then by 2007, that was when it, it started to go beyond just kind of Vermont. Um, and there were competitions happening across the US at different colleges. They started getting to the size where they had World Cups. And that was kind of like the start of the first international level of growth. And also kind of like off the back of that, 
Quadball UK sprung up as the national governing body of um, Quadball in the UK. Huge amounts of growth, huge amounts of new teams and new players starting to play the sport. That kind of like growth trajectory kind of continued through the 2010s. After the, the books had come out, after the films came out, we were starting to attract a very different kind of player, less of people who were initially just interested in that kind of like Harry Potter history of the sport, but certainly much more um, growing group of people who are interested very much in just the sport itself um, and playing a physical team sport. So the sport that we most frequently compare to is rugby, but it also has elements of soccer and dodgeball. So while the sport may have begun from two muggles' attempts to bring a fictional game from the page to the pitch, it's become its own independent sport, with a 150-page-plus rulebook and a governing body. And in 2022, the sport once called Quidditch became quadball, both with the four types of balls involved in the game and the fact that it dates back to its origins on the Middlebury College quad. So the name change is still relatively new. We've already seen some benefits of the name change, some additional sponsorship opportunities. U.S. Quadball, the national governing body in the United States, they recently partnered with ESPN to get some information and just media on that channel. And part of that was the ability to not use the Quidditch name that is owned by Warner Brothers. So it definitely gives us more ownership. It also allows us to remain closer and more true to our values as a mixed gender sport to really distance from an entity that in its current state really doesn't allow for that form of flexibility. And last, but certainly not least, to tell us a little bit more about the new Olympic sport for the Paris 2024 Games, we have Rob Pountney, founding board member of GB Breaking. Breaking is a dance style uh, that came out of the street culture of the New York Bronx. It's um, the first dance of hip hop, and essentially it has uh, gone through a series of stages of evolution over the last, you know, five decades. And um, now it's got to a point where, you know, there's competitions around the world. It's a head-to-head -head battle dance, which is why it suits the sports format quite well as a dance style. Breaking is um, made up of a number of elements which can be judged, and so this is uh, why it works quite well in that sporting format. I'm trying to be in the moment. I try to connect my body to the music. Breaking gives me the freedom to completely be myself. It's a very youthful and exciting format to watch. It's very inclusive, it's very accessible, it's very affordable. It um, has mass participation globally. There are lots and lots of countries, very, very diverse in its cultural inclusion. And so therefore, I think it was very attractive to the IOC for that reason. Hopefully you've learned a thing or two about these sports. But before we ask the question of how a new sport gains credibility, we'll first ask, why do sports even want it? Great question. I think credibility is obviously part and parcel of one's ability to be able to kind of professionalise any sport. Uh, whatever sport it is that you're talking about, if you're trying to generate revenue around that sport through the traditional sports marketing revenue channels so, or sports business channels, so sponsorship, uh, through merchandise, through ticket sales, through licensing, and ultimately through TV rights, you need credibility for that sport to gain mass audience. And credibility means different things to many different people. I would say that 
the organizations that are passionate about this Olympic movement within breaking, we're prioritizing the need for credibility. We, we want to make sure that we are taken seriously. We want to make sure that as an organization, we are seen to be professional and that we deliver policy and that we deliver governance to a very high standard. And we want to be able to essentially prove to a global audience that breaking is an incredible sporting discipline on top of what we already have. Unfortunately, like most desirable things, credibility doesn't come easily and every sport will face its own obstacles or as Tom might put it, get in a few pickles. I think one of the things that potentially has held pickleball back a little bit has been the name. You know, the name pickleball it is it met with people who've never heard it before as a kind of, you know, with furrowed brows and a, and a kind of question, why is it called pickleball? And my response to that is, is always, if you take any name of any sport, it kind of sounds a little odd if you say it out of context. Golf, squash, you know, all of these, if you take them out of context, they're kind of crazy names. In America, the word pickleball has gone way over the kind of tipping point of people wanting to kind of question why is that a serious sport aligned to the name. It is a very serious sport because of the tens of millions of people that are playing uh, and the numbers that are now starting to be generated in terms of viewing figures, in terms of participation uh, and in terms of the kind of revenue that is being generated by the sport. And what about breaking? What kind of barriers have they dealt with? There's quite a few actually. Um... The cultural context and then the background of breaking, you know, the fact that it comes from inner cities, it comes from party atmospheres, it comes from that street culture lifestyle. Um, you know, there's a lot of lot of amazing positive aspects, but there's some negative connotations associated with that. Um, you know, this is the the first time that breakers have been asked to conform to a set of rules. There are unspoken rules, unwritten rules in the past and those inside the culture will know what those are but you know when it becomes a sport the concept of fair sport and safe sport are, are the pinnacles you know they're, they're the pillars that you need to adhere to so you know um the judging system and the fact that you are judged by a set of criteria which we knew about before but now is a lot more kind of rigid that is a, a challenge for us as well the music is also a challenge because the DJ will play what they want in a cultural atmosphere. But now I think with the onset of music licensing and, and, and the requirements for live streaming, it's a little more complex. So there's times when the music isn't ideal and hopefully they'll be able to work with maybe some record labels and production companies to improve that scenario. Earlier, Rob described breaking as a style of dance. So there are some that would consider it to be an art form as opposed to a sport. The way I look at breaking is not so much a, a scale from sport to art. I see it as more of a, what do you want breaking to be for yourself? Um, some people will perform in the theater. Some people will perform as backing dancers for an artist. And some people will want to compete in the sporting arena, you know? I think personally that the sport element of breaking only makes up a very small percentage of the culture of breaking and therefore it's very, very valid and it's a massive new opportunity 
to create an incredible uniqueness that breaking holds where it transcends music, entertainment, sport, um, fashion. And these things are should be seen as a massive positive and, and not as a drawback. Oh, go on, Harry. Quidditch is great. Best game there is. And then there's quad ball. Now, while the book and film series about a young wizard called Harry Potter may have helped with its inception, that same association proved to be a hindrance to the sport's development. The largest issue that I would say that the sport has had in terms of credibility was the same thing that got it popularity. It was the Harry Potter connection. While Harry Potter was absolutely a vital origin story for this sport, and it made so many people hear about muggle quidditch, quote unquote, it also got a lot of negative attention. It was, oh, these nerds are running around on brooms and they have their capes and people were not taking the sport as seriously. And if you just watched a video, if you went to a match, you would say, oh, this is a sport, like a capital S sport. And it, even in its early stages, it was a sport, it absolutely was, but it was a more whimsical, fantastical sport. But if you've watched any videos 2013 or later, you would notice that the sport truly is a fully rigorous athletic activity. But because we had that Harry Potter name, because people remembered a time when we played on actual brooms with bristles and actually wore capes and partnered with actual Harry Potter organizations, they viewed this more as LARPing, live action role playing, than actually a sport. So in the conversations about rebranding, that was one of the conversations we had to have. It was both, hey, we want to distance ourselves from the negative views, the antithetical views of the author of the series that we took original inspiration from. But we also need to accept the fact that this is holding us back. We do not have the ability to license our own product. We do not have the availability to reach into the core athletic market because people would just see the name and say, I'm looking for a real sport. That's not for me. So we had to sort of tackle those two things individually, but they both went back to the fact that we were not presenting ourselves as a legitimate sport until you actually started looking. And we could not trust that people were willing to take that first step. It's a Harry Potter-inspired sport that's sort of moved away from that, that group to a large extent and become its own real physical sport. There's people who are in the sport because that is what appeals to them. I would say that in general they are becoming more of a minority, especially as the next generation of players come in post-pandemic. Um, we, we are seeing a huge amount of people who are playing the sport purely because of its values and their interest in it as a sport as a whole, not because of the uh, relation to Harry Potter, because they are they're a generation removed now. The uni students that are coming through, the um, Gen Z, they're not the generation that grew up on these books and on these films. They know of them. Um, it's part of pop culture. There's no denying uh, their place in pop culture and the importance that they had, but it's just that's less of an appeal to them. For them, it's kind of anecdotally, it's a lot more about the community and the culture of the sport that is what appeals to them. Now, while each sport does have blockers on their path to credibility, they also have one key advantage that other sports didn't, modern technology. 
So how is it different growing sport in the digital age? I think the difference between growing a sport in the digital age compared to the kind of pre-digital age uh, is that you have so much more opportunity from uh, the, the, the world that we live in in 2023. Uh, there are now multiple ways of being able to bring communities together, not just to be able to kind of celebrate uh, the sport that they want to take part in, that they enjoy playing, but also to actually physically bring those people together. So th there are multiple people coming into the market with great ideas about how to support the growth of pickleball. I'll, I'll give you a really simple idea. If, if I want to play this afternoon in Austin, Texas, I can go on an app and I can find a court and I can find people to play against uh, as easily as I can order food from Uber Eats or order a car from Uber. Uh, there, that kind of app idea um, absolutely is a game changer in helping grow the sport quickly because you're removing all of the barriers of entry. Pre-digital, you didn't have that kind of opportunity. If you'd heard about a sport through a magazine, radio or TV or a newspaper or word of mouth, you then have to kind of go looking for where you could go and play that sport. Now. All of that is provided to you through your cell phone, through your mobile phone. It's all in your hand. The other is the celebration of the sport. Uh, you, you know, using social media channels to tell people how much I love this sport and show the joy that I get from it is instantaneous. We're talking just as Threads has launched and the meta folks have just unleashed their platform against Twitter. And I think one of the things that I've been monitoring in the last 24 hours alone is an incredibly rapid rise of pickleball people on threads celebrating why they love that sport. So uh, if I play a game and I enjoy it and I can post images or video of me playing that instantly on any channel, I'm obviously therefore kind of spreading the love of that, which again helps grow the sport. So I think the world that we live in today has definitely contributed to its rapid growth. Um, it does, on the flip side, mean you have to be socially responsible. You have to be, as a brand owner within this sport, you have to be very conscious of how you are communicating what the sport provides. All that talk about social responsibility at the end there leads us nicely into the topic of inclusion. Modern sport should reflect modern values. So we asked Quadball how and why they've integrated inclusive values. Let's start with Declan from Quadball UK. In the UK and in a lot of Europe, we play a, a max-free gender rule, which basically says that you can only have up to three people of the same gender on pitch at any one time. That rule also makes it super inclusive and accessible to make sure we have um, trans and non-binary identities. If you identify as non-binary, you can play as a non-binary player um, not counting to that kind of free maximum. So we kind of had a huge growth where we had a lot more people who were interested in the sport aspect, the inclusiveness of it, um, the kind of culture that had started to develop around the sport. And now a perspective from Jeremy from the IQA. Yes, absolutely. We are a fully mixed gender sport and we use that wording intentionally. We never say co-ed because co implies the existence of two genders, like a male and female, and we are mixed gender. Many of our players are trans, and many of them are non-binary, so they can exist outside that binary spectrum where they might be agender. So from a value perspective, we absolutely ensure that this is something that we're looking at every single day. 
our main values as an organization are inclusivity, integrity, and accessibility. We want to make sure that we are creating this inclusive space for all and a whole array of diverse people. As a community, we want to ensure that our sport is inclusive of people of different ethnicities, cultural backgrounds, ages, languages, gender, sexual orientations. So when you're working on creating a modern sport, you have to definitely take a few things into account. One is the one I've already spoken about. You have to take gender into account. You have to take social accountability into account. You also have to take just diversity as a whole into account. What efforts is the sport taking to encourage players who are not all just white male or players who do not come from privileged economic backgrounds? To summarize, so far, we've given you a primer on the origins of pickleball, quadball, and breaking. We've examined the challenges they faced in being considered credible as modern sports, their use of digital technology, and the integration of inclusive values. So what exactly are the markers of credibility? What advice would these leaders have for growing a new sport? And how might getting that stamp of credibility change the sport and how it's perceived in sometimes unexpected ways? We'll be back after a quick break. Welcome back. First, a quick check-in on where the leaders of these new sports feel they are in their, quote, journey. First, Jeremy Schleicher from the International Quadball Association. Quadball is just getting started. So now that we have actually rebranded, we are officially Quadball, our organizations are opening themselves up for sponsorship opportunities. They're opening themselves up to athletes who before were just swearing it off because they're like, I'm not going to play Quidditch, but they'll actually play Quadball. This sport is such an interesting sport, and we've seen such success with the partnerships we've already had, that there is no reason that within the next few years that we cannot grow to the success of other grassroots sports like Pickleball or Ultimate. We asked the same question to Tom Webb from the Association of Pickleball Players. I think in the USA, Pickleball has not yet reached its full potential. There's a, a, a current issue we face over here in America, which is demand far outstripping supply for court space. So there are more and more courts coming online every day at a rapid rate. There's about 330 courts are opened every single month somewhere, you know, across the USA. Uh, and, and that number is being driven by demand. That's just in America. I, I've referenced a few times the international growth as well. And I think that what you're going to see is a real explosion of participation worldwide. So these sports look to be on a positive upward trajectory. Tom makes it clear when he speaks to us that pickleball is at the stage where it has attained credibility. But what does he consider the markers? For pickleball to be considered credible, I don't think it's just about having numbers of people playing. I, I think it's about having the structures around it that enable people to be able to play safely, fairly, securely, wherever they want to play, with a common set of rules and an understanding of how the game operates. I think that's part of what gives you credibility. But the sport is heading in that direction naturally anyway. I think from an objective perspective, if somebody is asking, you know, who hasn't played pickleball, doesn't work in it, doesn't benefit from it in, in any way, if they're assessing it and saying, 
what gives it credibility. I think it, it's all of the things that we're talking about. I think it requires global governance, so it needs the kind of structures in place that Olympic sports have, for example. Uh, it needs to have a serious mass um, participation or mass audience through the sheer growth in participation numbers, through the increasing interest from traditional sports channels and platforms in being engaged with the sport. I think those are all adding to credibility. And I can tell you again from a subjective point of view that the conversations that we have with sponsors demonstrate that they can see the huge opportunity that Pickleball provides. Uh, We, the APP, have a large roster of both endemic and non-endemic sponsor partners. Uh, The endemic partners, the paddle manufacturers, the ball manufacturers, the kind of clothing folks, you would expect them to want to and need to be involved in the sport. But we're increasingly seeing people uh, from outside the world of pickleball coming proactively to us and saying, how do we get involved in your sport? There is a huge credibility piece to that, that they wouldn't be engaging with us as an organization unless we were entirely credible and kind of market leaders. Declan Ramsey from Quadball UK spoke about his goals and hopes for the sport, comparing it here to Ultimate, formerly known as Ultimate Frisbee, to which Quadball has often been compared. So I think um, in terms of like a modern sport and how people are modernising, I think it's just by being inclusive and having a sport that is welcome to all, it just it makes the opportunities to grow so much better. If you're, we're not excluding, you know, entire swaths of the population that's just going to mean that we can grow and appeal to such a, a bigger audience. Listen to this. Can you believe that breaking, breakdancing is now officially an Olympic sport? Earlier, we referred to a sports debut in the Olympics as the rubber stamp of credibility. But for breaking, what was the process like taking it from subculture to Olympic sports? We asked Rob Poutney how the sport was repackaged to fit that kind of structure. From our side of things, in order to get it into the Olympics um, in Britain, we had to create an organization that enabled a little bit of um, quality control and policy to be introduced so that there was structure. Uh, from a global perspective, I think the IOC required a, a governing, uh, an international federation that had memberships structures in multiple countries um, and therefore the WDSF were given the um, the international federation status as uh, um, the organization overseeing breaking into the Olympics and most countries have member bodies of this federation um, but in GB we'd slight we did it slightly differently and we created an independent organization called breaking GB which essentially you know, it's a non-profit that's run by a board um, who have interests in um, promoting and protecting b-boy, b-girl culture in this country and making sure that, you know, that the essence of that isn't lost when it becomes a sport. There's an implication that in trying to obtain the ultimate level of credibility, there is a possibility of losing the essence of the sport and some who participate in it aren't always sure if it's worth the risk. There will always be a little bit of friction between the mentalities of what people want. But generally at the moment, I I would say that it's the younger generation that are really excited by the idea of it being on a sporting platform like the Olympic Games. 
and maybe some of the the, the more um, older generation dancers who've been doing this a long time find it more difficult to accept um, either because they may feel left out or because they feel like it's going too far away from where they saw it and were interested in starting in the first place and obviously you know with the dance only being 50 years old at this point or just under 50 years old really it's also very relevant that the some of the pioneers some of the creators of these of this dance style are still um, with us and have a voice and you know there are many that are supportive of the olympic games movement and the sporting movement of breaking then there'll be many that are not uh, supportive of that but ultimately the exposure that comes from the mark of mainstream sport and success has undeniable benefits in this country we've partnered with uk sport that's a really really exciting movement that we can feel like we are a, a valid organization we've had two breakers qualify for the european games and therefore represent team gb a real groundbreaking moment for for breakers <laughs> that sounded funny but yeah a really moment a momentous occasion for for this culture to have breakers representing their countries and and i think that is really the kind of excitement around you know the inclusion in the olympics is the the door opening side of it where you know there's new opportunities and new career pathways for these young breakers who can now push towards success and know that there may be some light at the end of the tunnel from a fulfillment perspective and also from a financial perspective and in the long term we're hoping to use the legacy of the olympic games as as a way to grow breaking in britain and be able to create those pathways from grassroots level through to international competition um, so everything from the opportunity to get it into the school system and to create some safe places for accessibility into breaking and and provide uh, training for coaches and teachers as they learn how to um, you know engage new young people into the sport we've heard perspectives from three sports that are on different paths but we've all witnessing promising development so let's have a few words of advice for any organization that is seeking to gain credibility in a new sport if I was going to give somebody who was involved with a new sport any guidance and any advice, I would say there are a few things that they need to focus on. One is understanding what is it that motivates people to want to play and celebrating that motivation. At its heart, pickleball is fun. It is a game invented in somebody's back garden, as we would say in England. Uh, and it was designed and created for people to have fun. So at the heart of what we do at the APP is we keep coming back to this idea that it is what we're doing fun. That the people who are coming to our events, who are engaging with us, are they enjoying what they're doing? So anybody who's involved in a new sport is don't try and apply generic sports thinking to the sport that you're involved with and expect it to work. Be true to the roots of what makes people want to take part in that sport uh, and celebrate that because that is the core essence of any sport. Um, it, it is why is somebody attracted to want to come and play it or take part in it or watch it 
And as soon as you start moving away from that, as soon as you start saying, well, in order for us to be credible, we need to have people wearing, I don't know, the same uniforms as they do in another sport, or we need to have the same sort of, you know, playing environment as you do in another sport. If that's not natural to the sport that you're working in, you will alienate people very quickly. So I think that that's probably right at the heart of it. I think I fell in love with sports because I saw it as honest. If you can produce, you get to play. And it was that simple. Maybe you're listening to this for insights on how to grow a modern sport. Or maybe you're just listening to this as a sports professional and, most likely, a sports fan. So why not, if you haven't already, pick up a new one? A lot of people recognise as well um, with all the, the mental health crises and the health crises that sport is now more important than ever. We need things that encourage people to have healthy lives, to have that kind of social aspect, the way they are engaging with a community and they've got friends and they're outside and they're running and they're having fun. That is such a crucial part of our kind of like human experience. If you are looking for a unique sport and an experience like no other athletic activity, if you are someone who has felt restricted by the traditional norms of genders within athletics, if you are someone who really just wants to find a community of fun and engaging athletes, or if you are someone who just wants to get involved with this up-and-coming experience as a volunteer, as a spectator, you want to try to check out Quad Ball. And if you've fallen off the sports wagon, maybe you could choose pickleball and get back on the paddle. There is a real community feeling around people who play pickleball. Um, there is a kind of sense, almost like a kind of tribal sense of we enjoy this sport that perhaps some people are still kind of saying it's a niche thing, you know, how far is it ever going to go? But it's one of those things now where with the volume of people that are playing, if you walk into a room of 100 people and you pick a random group out of there and you say, what do you know about pickleball? I guarantee you at least one of them says I've played it. Um, probably one of them says, I don't really know what you're talking about. The other three will say either I've tried it or I know people that are playing it. And the universal response is, and I love it. Everybody wants to be part of a community uh, and Pickleball very much creates that. Oh my God, it is a phenomenal. I discovered Pickleball and the light went off in my head. Where would you be without Pickleball right now? <laughs> I honestly don't know. So there are a few factors that need to be ticked off in order to be considered credible. Creating a rulebook and structure, forming a governing body, growing participation, getting that Olympic stamp, and getting those partners and sponsors. But it's just through stories, through credible experiences, and through community that, to its fans and participants, sports become incredible. You've been listening to Force Material, the podcast telling the stories where sport meets entertainment, lifestyle, and culture. Thank you so much to our guests this episode, Tom Webb, Jeremy Schleicher, Declan Ramsey and Rob Pountney. And please join us next time as we explore another story.